Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Huss, and my guest for this episode is Alice Anderson. Alice is the vigneron for Amvive Winery, based in Santa Barbara County. Alice leases the Ibarra Young Vineyard in the Los Olivos district and farms it with regenerative organic and biodynamic viticulture in partnership with the animals and native flora and fauna. In this interview, we really dig into the wine growing and winemaking specifics of how to craft beautiful natural wines even in hot crazy years like 2020. It's clear that Alice's brilliance is in her holistic perspective on both caring for vines and making wine. And her generosity of spirit and thoughtfulness come through in the way that she approaches every aspect of her passion. Amvive is only in its second vintage, and it's clear we can expect great things to come from Alice. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you value this podcast and would like to support it, it's as easy and delicious as buying a bottle of Centralis wine. Centralis wine is my winery, and I started it to promote regenerative organic agriculture like what we talk about on this podcast episode, because I believe it's one of the most powerful solutions to some of the most important problems we're facing in human and environmental health today. Centralis wines are only ever made from organically grown grapes, so you can be part of making a cleaner, healthier world simply by choosing to buy our wines. And since Centralis is the sponsor of this podcast, buying a bottle helps to promote people like Alice, who are also doing amazing work and making our planet cleaner and more delicious through regenerative organic agriculture. You can buy Centralis wines at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And you can buy Alice's wine at amvivewine.com. That's A-M-E-V-I-V-E wine.com. Enjoy. Hi, Alice. Thanks so much for being here and doing this. Hey, it's a pleasure. So you are you are a California girl, born and bred, right? Born and bred, Central Valley. Central Valley. What part of the Central Valley? I grew up in Modesto. And then, um, yeah, right most of my upbringing was there. For a couple short years, I lived in Napa with my family, but most of my upbringing's in Modesto. And did you, I mean, that is definitely grape country. Were you, <laughs> did you feel that in your blood from an early age or... You know, my mom has always been in the wine industry, kind of. She She's a graphic designer. So when we lived in Modesto, she worked for Gallo um, for their creative department. And then when we lived in Napa, she worked for Mondavi before they sold. So that was kind of my in in the wine industry. But, you know, I didn't really know that until I got older. But yeah, growing up in Modesto, there's a, a you're surrounded by agriculture. And I think that's where my love for farming and animals and and that sort of lifestyle evolved from great so you 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 fell in love with uh animals or maybe not fell in love with animals and agriculture but it was or did you was it love was it a love yeah i i don't know i've always loved animals like i grew up riding horses and being at the barn oh my gosh, six days a week riding everyone's horses and you know, going on trail rides out in the orchards and walking along the canal banks. And I think that was like, yeah, I would say I did fall in love with animals first and, <laughs> and agriculture alongside it. I, I don't, was, was in any way or, organic viticulture or those kind of values part of the agriculture that you were growing up with via your parents or any other exposure? No, I can't say so. I think that... I mean, I wouldn't guess so in the Central Valley. It would be a rare thing. I I think it's pretty normal to be exposed to, you know, kind of conventional agricultural practices. And then with your evolution in agriculture, you kind of figure out what's important to you. And, you know, what's important to me is our planet, what I put in my body, what we expose ourselves to. And that just completely lends itself to organic, uh, organic farming, and, you know, furthermore, regenerative farming and biodynamic farming. 
Well, and we're, we'll get to exactly what you're doing and, but just teasing it, it's, you know, you are doing all the work in the vineyard that you're working in. So I, I imagine that ha- plays a part in terms of being very conscientious about what the environment is that you're working in and what you're spraying into it, um, which is, I mean, I know a selfish motivation, but I think that's important as well. Um, but so let's get back to how did you make that transition when you when you were heading out into the world to forge your fate what directed <laughs> you and and where did you and where did you go yeah so right out of um high school i went to cal poly um and have a degree there from in viticulture and enology so they kind of teach you you know the basics of of viticulture of kind of the conventional style and try to set you up to be the most successful that they can in this world. And it it was awesome. And then after that, so after Cal Poly, I went to New Zealand and I worked, I was there for seven months and worked at Amosfield and then in the vineyards at Ripon Vineyard down in Wanaka. And they're very famously uh, a biodynamic operation. And so that, that is kind of where I truly fell in love with, you know, taking care of your own land and, you know, being a good land steward and, and using everything that you have on your property. And, you know, it was, it was where I first saw, you know, the owners working every day in the vineyard to produce the grapes for their wine. It was just incredibly humbling and such an amazing experience. Um, and then after new, my time in New Zealand, I, I moved to France for a couple years and yeah, I was mostly in the, in the wineries there. I worked at a winery in the Northern Rhone. Um, but, but the French culture, the French viticulture culture is so ingrained that you make what you grow. And that's just the only way of making wine. Um, so that was kind of, yeah, that I, that was amazing. Um, what what part of uh, the Northern Rhone? I lived in a little tiny town called Malaval. It's a medieval town mm. um, up in the hillsides of Saint Joseph. Uh, just yeah, in the hillsides north of Chavanay, or not north, I guess west of Chavanay. Yeah, amazing. So uh, what, yeah, what were they growing? I mean, I'm, I'm. It sounds like Syrah country, but is that? Is that the main thing? Were they growing other things there? Yeah, so Syrah, uh, Viognier, Roussan, and Marsan. Uh, mostly Syrah, though. What did you learn about, I mean, I, about winemaking from the French, especially there? I, I mean, aside from this idea that you just mentioned, which I, I love, the idea of, you know, you're, you're growing your wine. Um, you're personally growing your wine. Yeah. What else in the cellar did you learn about? Or were, I mean, were you, did you spend as much time in the cellar as the vineyard or? Yeah. So I definitely spent more time in the cellar when I was in France. Um, and just, uh, uh you know, uh, a day every couple weeks or, or so in the vineyard. So just to expose me a little bit to it. And it was amazing, uh, working with mostly guys doing the, the hard labor because they're hard working people in France on those hillsides in the Northern Rhine. Anyway, back to winemaking. No, uh, no, that's, that's, I would love to hear that. What was that like? <laughs> what, were you the only girl out there? Oh my gosh. Well, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's definitely women that work in, in the fields, but they're doing mostly like shoot thinning or, or harvesting and kind of like the, the, easier air quotes tasks and the guys would be like working the toy which is like the big plow that you attach to your tractor and kind of tilling up the soil all by hand um you know those (laughs) the guys are the people with the backpack sprayers walking up the steep rocky hillsides and it, it it was just funny so yeah i mean you know, when I put my the backpack on to to carry the grapes during harvest that everyone's throwing the buckets in, it was just a comical experience. And everyone's like, yeah, Alice. So, uh, <laughs> and then they Did, put me uh, on the 
koi and yeah, good times. Were there were there other Americans working with you? No. Um, well, not during off vintage. So my, my first vintage up in the Northern Rhone, there was one other American guy. Um, and he left after harvest and I stayed on. Um, they hired me full time at that point. And, and then, yeah, through the year, um, no, it was kind of when I got hired back on, uh, they, you know, they told me that the only way that they're going to hire me back on is, um, if they don't speak English to me. So, so that was a quick little, uh, real realization (laughs) that, um, yeah, I better get good at French or at least try to understand it. (laughs) How did you do that? Oh man. Well, it's just, you know, uh, context clues for the first uh, week or so. And then it just (laughs) happens. And I remember being extremely tired the first month of, you know, all French in the cellar and, and then it just becomes easier. And I'm so grateful for that because now I can, you know, understand conversations and engage. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a hundred percent fluent by, by any means, but can definitely get myself around very well so i'm so grateful for for that nice you weren't doing any like duolingo on the side or yeah i did do that i woke up every morning for the the first month probably and did my duolingo and Uh felt good about that went to the cellar (laughs) my work you know i'm still like type and you know i had to like type some emails in french for people and like that, that stuff is still super hard for me, but <laughs> because I never learned in a professional, you know, sit down, like classroom setting of how to speak French, it was all verbal. Um, right. So I still don't write very well or anything like that, but it's okay. <laughs> gotcha. So were they practicing biodynamic or organic viticulture where you were working? No, no. Actually, in the Northern Rhone, um, there's only a few uh, wineries that practice organic and biodynamic viticulture. Um, So what was that contrast like between New Zealand and France? I mean, did that inform your your thoughts and values around wanting to do one version or the other when you had um, a chance to do it yourself? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, I haven't like thought about it too finitely like that, but um, it just was. So you, weren't, been more of a, you weren't doing like comparing and contrasting in your head, uh, no. you know, going from one to the other. Okay. Well, actually, like kind of my first, you know, the whole a, a big part of my transition into farming has been because I wanted to farm with horses, mm. so. You know, I, I, when I lived in France, I went and mentored with, with people that were horse plowing and, and using horses in the vineyard, um, as a way of, you know, avoiding the tractor and getting right. back to the original roots of, of farming. Um, yeah. and just, you know, working with an animal is so incredibly powerful and it brings it a, a whole new set of energies to to the vineyard, which is, you know, a living being and produces a living thing that we turn into wine. So that was kind of my first um, step. And, and that's what I learned in France. And then coming back to the States, you know, that was my first intention farming the vineyard was I really wanted to horse plow and, and work with horses. And that has kind of like naturally morphed into uh, regenerative farming. And, you know, I'm, I would love to still work with horses in the vineyard in a little bit more of a different way at this point, but uh, yeah. You, yeah, I was going to ask, are you still... <laughs> Say that again, sorry. You can't have everything good at once. So it's <laughs> baby steps, you know. Now, do you still want to plow your vineyard or are you no-till? Yeah, I'm fully no-till, so we are on our second, uh, the vineyard's on its second year fully no-till. Okay. And yeah, I, at this point, I don't want to till. Um, You know, there's a couple sections maybe that have a lot of Bermuda grass that I would 
potentially take out with, you know, manually. Yeah. But um, right now, I don't want to. And that could change, you know, it's, but for the most part, yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of regions that I, I don't want to tell and we can get into that as, as much. Yeah. Well, as, no, I, I know that temptation because we, you know, our yard, uh, <laughs> which we treat as a vineyard orchard garden was all Bermuda grass before it became that. And Ooh. you just can't get rid of that stuff. I mean, it oh, is man. forever there. Um, <laughs> and it yeah. spreads if you leave, if you turn your back on it for a quarter it's just, it's like yeah. oh wait now we have a yard again <laughs> like yeah um, it well yeah, yeah yeah insidious um so well let's introduce what you're doing now so you you came back from france and you, it sounds like you have a lot going on in addition to <laughs> just the vineyard but why don't you i mean give us an overview and then and then um talk about this vineyard and where, what it is, where it is, what it's called, the history of it and that kind of things. But what, but also what, what are you doing in general right now? Sure. Yeah. So when I came back from France, I came back for an assistant winemaker job um, at Tyler Winery uh, in Lompoc. And, you know, I've kind of been mostly a winemaker, like professionally, that's where like, you know, I've you know, made a living, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I just kind of like naturally was like, well, let's move on. And, and so, yeah, I make wine for another client and I'm the assistant at another place for Tatomer right now. And he's amazing. And then on the side, I have my own wine label called Amvive and I farm a vineyard called Ibarra Young. It's in Los Olivos district in Santa Barbara County. And it was planted in 1971 by Charlotte Young. The Youngs bought the property in uh, the early 1950s, I think 1952. And Charlotte Young has had three daughters, two of which still live on the property and are organic farmers also. Um, so the, the land has had the same owners since you know, since the fifties, which is, I mean, I love, um, one of the granddaughters also yeah. lives on the property too. And she's an organic farmer and she's helping me a lot actually with kind of, you know, the, um, the evolution of, uh, introducing, reintroducing natives back in the property. But anyway, we'll get back to that kind of story <laughs> of the vineyard. Um, yeah, it was planted in 1971 and then Bob Lindquist uh, came over in, I believe, 1986 or the mid to late 80s and uh, took over the vineyard and started farming it. And he transitioned to all organics in the 19, like mid 1990s. So it's been organic for a long time since organic was even trendy, I guess. Um, and yeah, so he planted a couple more blocks. He planted, um, some Albarino, which has since been grafted to Marsan. And he planted some, uh, really cool, uh, Tempranillo, uh, suitcase clone cuttings and some Graciano. So everything is own rooted on the property. Um, yeah. And then, so Bob Linquist gave up the lease in 2018. And um, at that point, kind of word was going around that this amazing parcel was, was up for lease. And, you know, a few, a few people sent it to me on separate occasions. And I kind of was like, wow, I, I didn't know I was putting this into the, into the universe, but I guess I should go look at this, at this place and meet with these people. And, and, you know, at the beginning of 2019, I, I met with them and I fell in love with the property and, but I just wasn't quite ready, you know, financially or probably emotionally to kind of take on the burden of, of leasing and farming this eight acre vineyard. So, um, yeah, I kind of, I passed in early 2019, but I ended up buying Marson from the property. Mm -hmm. Um, and in 2019 kind of had a year of rest 
the growing season of 2019. So there was no sprays, um, no tilling of the soil. All it was was pruned and harvested. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the end of 2019 came around and the vineyard needed uh, a lease holder still. And I was just like super ready and stoked and <laughs> yeah, pulled it all together. And we've been farming this vineyard since the beginning of 2020. So it's been a good well, project. <laughs> what was that process like of getting prepared mentally or financially or otherwise to lease an eight acre vineyard? I would love to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like I've always been really able to do it and I've had like the vision of doing it. But for me, you know, the big barrier has been financially and like, yeah, just trying to get all of the parts together because it's not just the lease we pay, you know, it's all of the inputs that we need to do, all of the labor that we need to, you know, pay to make this happen. Um, and my lovely partner in life and partner in business has been an amazing help in this Topher. So we pulled it all together and yeah, I mean, it, it's been, it's been great, but as far as what it takes, I mean, yeah, talking with friends and talking with people that have done this before and talking to, you know, vineyard managers in the area, as well as, you know, getting, yeah, your, your visions right and figuring out, what that looks like to you. I mean, I don't farm, you know, by any conventional means at all. I'm definitely trying to like push the, push the boundary as far as what is normal here on Santa Barbara County and nice. see what we You're can trying do. To, trying to spread the spectrum so that, <laughs> so normal skews a little bit more in that direction, I guess. Yeah. So, um, you have told me that you allocate about 20 hours a week to yeah. vineyard work. Is that about, does that sound right? Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. Now, some people might listen to this and think, how could you spend 20 hours a week in an eight acre vineyard? I mean, what do you do? Like once you prune it, <laughs> it grows and then you harvest it at the end of the year. What, what's the big deal? Like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, there's so much to do all the time. So yeah, so not only do we have those big tasks like pruning, shoot thinning, um, spraying, which is not that many times for us, but yeah, there's also weed whacking and, you know, consciously planting and there's irrigation repairs and gopher trapping and creating habitats for our animals and chipping. I mean, the the list goes on, you know, nets, nets are huge, you know, like protecting yeah. our, our assets from birds because we are in, you know, we are in a pretty urban setting. You know, there's other things that we can do like cannons or lasers. Um, but right now we're using nets. Um, yeah, that takes a lot of time to put those nets on, protect our grapes, take those nets off, put them away for the season. <laughs> um, now we're really focused on, so now that our, our nets are done, you know, we're kind of weed whacking under rows and getting it ready for the rainy season and our cover cropping and our compost. And then that will grow. And then we're going to be reintroducing our sheep for the winter and springtime. So it'll be uh, rotating our sheep and our chickens and ducks. So there's always something. <laughs> sort yeah. of like you're, you're a herder and a uh, landscaper and a, and a viticultural manager, all of exactly. the above. Yeah. And it's a maintenance to, person. Yeah. And it's, it's trying to find a connection with the land too. And you know, you, you can farm. Um, I mean, the, the classic way to make money farming a vineyard is to do it all the same, right? Like you take your recipe and you do it in one place. It works there. Okay. Apply it to the next place. And yes, sure. You can farm like that, but that, and you will get grapes, but you won't, I, I won't, I don't necessarily think that you get grapes with soul and with energy and with intent. And by, you know, literally walking our rows every day and noticing what each vine is doing and noticing the plant or the plants that are growing around each vine and the, the animals that 
are moving around our vineyard and, and helping with the entire ecosystem, like that matters. And, and we want to encourage that. And that takes a little bit more time. I notice you have one of your labels has an owl on it. And is that because I do you encourage predatory birds to nest yeah, around the vineyard? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So all of the wine labels are all based on the natural flora and fauna um, of the vineyard. So right. there's a owl on one, there's a jackrabbit on one um, surrounded in coyote bush, you know, on the back, there's some quail and there's a California king snake and, and the other one, there's a blue dragonfly and some California native flowers. But um, yeah, so that, you know, we're, we're trying to work with nature rather than against it. So like you, when, when, you, when you think of, yeah, keeping a, a predatory bird there, you know, we, we're, we're no-till, so we're not like disturbing our, our soil um, in any way. So oftentimes, you know, people think of gopher problems, but if you have gophers, you're not tilling up that soil. You may have gophers, but you also have a higher snake population. You also aren't disturbing the home for the weasels that are just absolutely ferocious predators to, to gophers um, and in uh, other species. And then if you have those snakes, then you have, you know, bigger populations like uh red tail hawks and, and barn owls and great horned owls and just creating the system that works all by itself um, is important. Right. Since you brought that up, how you say that you are farming it uh, regeneratively organically. Um, what does that mean? What does regenerative mean? Yeah, sure. So there's, you know, ultimately regenerative agriculture is all about rebuilding and maintaining soil health and increasing the health of your topsoil. So by doing that, we're uh, cover cropping, we're applying compost and creating compost from the waste on our land. Uh, we're not tilling the soil. We're, we're using uh, sheep and chickens and ducks to graze responsibly. Um, we're introducing kind of perennial crops that will stay in the ground forever and always have a living root system. Um, and so that's kind of like the basis of regenerative farming, but furthermore, you know, we're really conscious about our actual footprint on the land and kind of what that means. And we're actively trying to reduce it. So, you know, we're, we're trying to also increase biodiversity and, and kind of, create as many plants as we can um, and give, give them a home, plants and animals. And they work off each other. So when you, when you say create as many plants as you can, what do you mean by that? I guess not necessarily create because uh, plants kind of grow themselves, <laughs> but um, giving them an opportunity to thrive, you know, introducing them, uh, letting them consciously seed and, you know, so, so there's, you know, we have some pretty cool plants on our land. We have this native lupin to our land that has been there since, you know, before, uh, for a long time. I mean, there's photos of one of the granddaughters standing in the lupin field um, when she was six. And now that lupin field is where our Graciano is. So taking that plant that's indigenous to our land and, you know, spreading that seed all over and kind of actively incorporating that. And lupin is really powerful. It's a nitrogen fixer. Um, and another cool thing about it is the sheep don't touch it. So, you know, it, it's, it's toxic to, to sheep and, and cattle. So oftentimes they won't eat it unless they're absolutely starving, but, and it's beautiful. So it does a lot of positive things. Uh, another cool native that we have on the land is this Spanish lotus, which is also nitrogen fixing and stays close to, to the ground. So actively trying to, you know, take where the Spanish lotus is growing and moving it to other parts of the vineyard that, you know, need more nitrogen. Well, the whole vineyard needs more nitrogen, but, um, you know, spreading that around and, and using what's on the land, uh, to our advantage. You, 
I mean, they all flower too. I imagine there's a uh, entomological benefit to a lot of these as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and that's another, another, you know, that, that's another reason why it's so important to have a bunch of different plants on your land. You know, they all attract different species of butterflies, birds, dragonflies, and and you know it's it's creating a system that works by itself and yeah so we're we're not only using like what we have on our land to our advantage but we're also kind of introducing other natives in our cover cropping program to enhance the biodiversity on the site that's nice you also let the animals run through and munch on those and they're fertilizing things um, with their munching and pooping. So oh, yeah. is there any, are there any other benefits to animals in the yeah. vineyard? Um, well, besides, you know, kind of the obvious, uh, the obvious natural fertilization and free lawn mowing, um, with that, <laughs> right. with that lawn mowing, you know, when, when an animal chops on that, on that plant, there's kind of a root flush of all of these different species. And those root flushes are creating a, a, you know, a home for all of these microbes to, yeah, create more nutrient available to our plant. So that, and, you know, there's like kind of going back to my love for animals, like there's an amazing connection that animals have with people or people have with animals. And I think that can't be forgotten. And when, when we work with animals in our vineyard and in our everyday, it brings us joy. You know, it, it makes the place feel more alive and gives it some soul and some energy. And yeah, that all translates I think into the wine that we make from the site. Yeah, I think I agree very much. Um, e I mean, even just having our little cat that we found in the backyard, who's now a big cat as a roommate, <laughs> it's, it sort of makes our little yard feel alive as he prowls around. Absolutely. Um, terrorizing our ankles. <laughs> um, you are actively cultivating. Uh, the soil microbiology and I know you're conscientious of that is that something that you learned in school or where did you pick up your knowledge about soil microbiology and and the plants that benefit that and the practices that benefit that yeah I mean we touched on it a little bit in school but definitely not as much as I'm into it now um <laughs> it's just reading and listening to people and you know, watching, watching things and watching it work. Um, you know, I am talking with uh, one of the granddaughter on the property. She is amazing and, and helps me with native plants. And she's, she has a whole entire business um, based on going out to the hillsides and collecting seed of native plants and propagating those seeds and selling the plants to the public to reintroduce natives back into their yards so she lives on the property and you know she is an amazing source for all of my plant happy soil needs so she's lovely nice well and you said you were doing some uh leaf petiole testing for nutrients and and saw there were some deficiencies how are you dealing with that am i i mean if, if i've gotten that correct yeah totally um so yeah, the last five-ish years, from what I understand, the vineyard hasn't had any compost inputs um, or like much input at all. So mm -hmm. we actually have kind of the easiest deficiency to uh, counter. Our main deficiency is nitrogen, which uh -huh. uh, we're very lucky, I guess. Um, nitrogen, you know, animals poop and we are successful. So <laughs> yeah just bringing in more animals and applying compost and and chicken poop and duck poop and that sort of thing so could you without the animals get enough nitrogen just from cover crops or anything like that from just pulling it out of the air 
Yeah, totally. Like there's a I forget. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but cover cropping and using nitrogen fixing, fixing plants like beans, vetch, I mean, even our lupin or a Spanish lotus, um, all of those things are, are trapping nitrogen into our soil. So consciously cover cropping. Yeah, we are doing all of that also. What's the, when you're doing this kind of fertilization of the soil, regeneration of the soil, what, what is the time frame for seeing a change? So you did a sample and took yeah. tests and you see that there's a nitrogen deficiency. Can you see an improvement by the spring when, you know, when new leaves come out? I mean, it's possible, but um, no, I think there's going to be more of like a five to eight year timeline uh, when it comes to to the land completely relying, like regenerating itself, really, like the topsoil having enough nutrients and microbes and fungi and plant roots to make a difference in analysis. But so right now we're, we're building that, you know, it's, it doesn't happen right. tonight. It's, it's a transition and you know, we're in it for the long haul. Really. <laughs> right. And well, that brings up a couple questions, but going back, you might've said this, but how was the vineyard farmed since the seventies? Has it always been farmed organically or? No. Yeah. So from the beginning, they were, you know, they tilled a lot. Uh, they used Roundup. Um, you know, they they used Roundup for about 20 years until the mid-1990s when they stopped all of that. Um, and, yeah, they, they said goodbye to Roundup and started using mostly sulfur in the vineyard, uh-huh. uh, which is organic. Yeah. And... But it's always been tilled, so okay. And until <laughs> you know, twenty nineteen. So gotcha. Yeah, there, there's been some uh, some good things and you know some average things throughout the life. <laughs> but uh, we're trying, like, with the all of the tilling and and you know loss of nitrogen and loss of nutrients and microbes and fungi in our soil. We've got a lot of work to do in rebuilding that and creating creating a topsoil that will, you know, hold water and has a place for microbes and fungi and, you know, is porous and yeah, has a holds a lot of nutrition for our body. Right. Nice. So you are also now selling or have sold your twenty nineteen vintage, is that right? Yeah, so we released our first wines in, oh, must have been beginning of October. Um, you, you buy some grapes, right? Yeah, so we buy our Gamay, um, and then last year we bought our Syrah also. Okay. Um, and then this 2020, we're only going to make Syrah from the vineyard, um, uh-huh. And but we also bought, we bought Gamay, so that was still Are <laughs> And what, what other wines are you making? So in 2019, I released Marsan from Ibarra Young Vineyard and Syrah and Gamay. And then in 2020, I'll have a rosé from Graciano from the vineyard. I'm doing a co-ferment, which is delicious. Um, I'm kind of like a cold uh, cold red wine. And what's, what's the, what's the co-ferment? The co-ferment is Marsan, Syrah, and Moved. And mm. the intention, it's made very different than most of my wines. Most of my wines are very whole cluster central. And this uh-huh. wine is 100% destemmed, like very low extraction. Mm. And the reason behind this wine is firstly to try to like diversify the vineyard from being a heavy red vineyard to something a little bit fresher and lighter. And, you know, I like to drink like fresh, light, easy wines. Uh-huh. Um so I wanted that to reflect it. And then this one part of the vineyard, it borders this beautiful garden that gets a lot of water and I'm sure fertilizer. And so this one, um, this one row, just the vines are huge. You know, the canes are all touching <laughs> the floor and the clusters are massive. And we got one ton to the row instead of like 1.3 tons to the acre, like the rest of our vineyard. 
So it didn't really <laughs> make sense to put those grapes in with our single varieties. So I wanted to do something different. So I destemmed it and, and it's its own wine now. Those three grapes together. That's uh, nice. Yeah. And I'm sure you've been tasting it. How is it? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just delicious. I mean, it's easy and drinkable and yeah, hopefully that'll be a nice springtime wine and that'll be released with the rosé as a little special treat. <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny. I've heard that when you add white, you know, I've I've heard I've read studies about adding white to red actually increases extraction and color intensity and things like that. Um did you how did you experience that or did I don't know what proportion you added it in maybe you added enough that it actually diluted it um but yeah what is your <laughs> what were what were your proportions i guess what went went into that yeah so i think it's a, i didn't measure anything they were all picked on the same day and it just gotcha, yeah yeah but um a true field blend true field blend yeah so nice. we just worked up the row, you know, and put them all in the same couple bins. So I, I nice. would estimate about, uh, excuse me, uh, 35% Marison, 35% okay. Syrah, and the rest Moved. Okay. And then, you know, because they were all harvested the same day, Moved, uh, Moved ripens a lot later than Syrah and Marison. So that was you know, much leaner and didn't quite have the color development that, you know, the Syrah had. Right. So true, it, true. Um, yeah. You know, it's a vibrant red, but it's still very transparent. It's not nice. deep by any means. And I didn't do any heavy punch downs or, you know, it's all just with my hand and very lightly right. extracted. So intentionally, you know, with, with that in mind. So. What? What, how would you do a heavy punch down? <laughs> I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. Like double once in the morning, once in the evening. Oh, gotcha. Um, gotcha. Just, yeah. Just, you know, doing it more when your fermentation is warmer. Um, yeah. I mean, you can do pump overs and punch downs at the same time to just extremely really? extract. <laughs> right. <laughs> And jump up in jump up and down on it too if you want to. Oh, yeah. All at the same time. <laughs> well, so I mean, I am familiar with Santa Barbara grapes and growing conditions, and and I'm curious how you deal with keeping acid and freshness in the grapes despite the heat, and and especially with Syrah and Morved, I know you, you can lose acid pretty quickly uh, as things heat up at, in the end of the, yeah. the fall. So, so that, what, how do you, how do you, what informs your picking decision? Do you pick for, you know, how, yeah, how do you pick and, and how do you keep a balance in your grapes? Yeah, totally. So as you know, I don't add anything to, to the grapes or the must right. or bring it into the cellar. So I'm really focused on acid in the vineyard before I harvest. Me and yep. especially this year, um, we had kind of a, a low acid year just with all of our heat waves so that yeah we had like an early heat spike a middle heat spike and a late heat spike <laughs> oh my gosh yes we <laughs> did it was a hard year to farm yeah. um but yeah so that often means for me that our grapes are going to be lower in alcohol just as right. you know, the the shift of acid and sugar accumulation happens so yeah, our instead of being around thirteen and a half percent alcohol with added acid, our our wines are you know more like twelve and a half percent alcohol with natural acidity. Right. Um, and that's just you know that that changes year to year as does nature. Um, right. This year that's kind of what happened, and yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I found as well. Um, have you? Do you do anything like picking at multiple times, like earlier, do like a portion of a wine on the earlier side to keep that freshness and then a portion later totally. to get more flavor development? Absolutely. Yeah. So with a Syrah this year, we, you know, I, it was my first year making Syrah from this vineyard. 
So me and mm-hmm. my my friend Mikey Juni of Scar of the Sea, who is also making uh, Syrah from the Vineyard this year, mm. we picked early uh, as kind of like an, an acid pick. Um, yeah. And then we picked a little bit like a week and a half later as more of a sugar pick. And we nice. wanted yeah. to pick right before the biggest heat spike. So thank heavens. It was like we right. picked- Saturday morning or Friday morning. And I think it was 116 that Saturday and 118 that Sunday. It was yeah. brutal. So, <laughs> yep, I, I did that too. <laughs> well, I think I, yeah. I had a, I, I had a Syrah pick that Friday as well. It's funny. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's cool. The, I left the wines separate in the cellar just to kind of understand, uh, how the acidity and, and the alcohol kind of plays with with uh, that site specifically, and they're really—I yeah. cool. mean, exactly as expected. The the first pick is like leaner and tighter and crisper, um, but still has plenty of depth and color and texture. It's amazing. And then right. the second pick is a little bit weightier and lush. Um, right, and be amazing together. They're, I yeah, really that's... they're going to go into the same into the same bottle but it's cool to watch you don't know yet no they will they will they will yeah yeah no i had that too i I mean we did that with two um our saran pinot two separate picks and and that exact exactly as you described and it is that like hopefully the combination i mean you never know when you blend but hopefully that combination will be sort of the best of both worlds where you end up with balance as well as complexity and, and everything else that the lushness, but the, but the textural and fresh component of the acid. Yeah. Very exciting. I, I felt like I discovered something, but I'm sure it's not new, <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like we should all know about this. If, if you have the ability to pick multiple times right, and okay. you're trying to make natural wine, it really is the only way to get, that sort of balance while maintaining acidity without adding anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of another beauty of farming your own spot. It's kind of hard to ask a vineyard management company that, you know, farms 500 acres. Oh, can I get one ton this day? And then in five days, can I get my other ton? You know, they're going to be like, Oh my gosh, worst client ever. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We don't talk to us until you're ordering 10 tons or something, you know? (laughs) But it's okay, you know. Yeah, I, it's important. You got to play with it. And yeah, it's nature. Yeah. It changes. Yeah, no, it's great. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I just am looking to the future of like, assuming we're going to have more difficult vintages in terms of heat, especially here, you know, below, once you get below the Bay Area, but even the Bay Area is starting to have some issues with heat. Um we've got to figure out how to make good wines, you know, naturally without, you know, relying on added the crutches of additives if we want to do natural wines. And I think these kind of techniques and things are important to sort of, you know, get out there and figure out it's fun stuff. I like the, I like the, the problem solving that goes into it. And I, you know, there's, there's this big deep rooted um, thing in California, like, you you don't get ripe flavors unless you have 23 bricks, 24 bricks, 25 bricks. And I've just simply found that that's not the case and and we're all approving that wrong and I think the trend yeah. will change if it hasn't already. I'm surprised you started you stopped at 25. I've I think <laughs> yes. 30 is actually where a lot of people are picking totally in right. some places. You're totally um, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's mind blowing. I used to I mean when I was first starting out I was always like, "Oh, yeah, like the the longer it hangs, the more flavor you get." I would like pick, you know, as late as possible and and often ended up with sweet wines because you just can't ferment at a certain point if you don't water back totally um yeah it ends up being more work if you uh if you harvest later you have to do more calculations that's right i know it's true (laughs) yeah like the hardest work is really picking at the right time if you and then the the grapes do sort of take care of themselves if you allow them to like that well leasing a vineyard is um an interesting option and had you considered 
it before this? Like, was this something that was on your radar? What brought this to as a, as an opportunity or a thought for you? And, you know, sure. can you talk about some of the pros and cons of that? Yeah. Well, you know, leasing you in essence have full control. Uh, that's obviously like leasey, lease or specific, but, um, you have to work with the owners. But for me, that that was the most uh, available option, considering I don't have a lot of capital to be buying my own land or buying a set of vineyards, <laughs> et cetera. Right. So uh, that very inexpensive um, <laughs> prime vineyard real estate in Santa Barbara, <laughs> I'm sure. I know. And this is probably even one of the more affordable regions. Well, not for much longer, but. Right. You're in Los Olivos district, right? Yeah. Or Los Olivos. It's pronounced Los Olivos, right? It's pronounced Los Olivos, yeah. I always do that wrong. Um and so where what are the what are the what is the range of that district? You're you're so, around the the town of Los Olivos, I imagine. Yeah, it's right around the town of Los Olivos and it goes all the way to Ballard Canyon. Okay. So it's encompassed in Santa Inez, like the greater Santa Inez. And mm-hmm. so the far western side is Ballard Canyon, and that's its own ABA. And then, you know. Does it, it touch Foxen on the east? Um, I don't know off the top of my head, to okay. be honest, but that sounds about right. But Fox, I want to say Foxen is now Aliso's. I am not sure. I think there are two. Now, uh, Elisos is, uh, there's Elisos and Foxen. Yeah, yeah. Pretty sure. So it all, (laughs) it's all all around the town of Los Olivos. (laughs) Yeah, got it. (laughs) Good enough. (laughs) Great. Well, what does the future hold then? What are you making, you you said you're making, what are, you said you're making Graciano and. Yeah, Rosé. Is that right? Yeah, Rosé Rose of Graciano, that sounds fun. Yeah, because it's a pretty earthy grape, right? So I imagine the Rosé sort of livens yeah. it up. But it really reta- it really retains its acidity. So the Rosé is actually yeah. delicious, you know, harvested oh, nice. around 20 and a half. And it's got, it's all been in, it's been in stainless steel its whole life. And it'll stay in stainless steel barrels for aging. And it's just super tasty and fresh and bright and yeah, really looking forward to that wine too. So that and the co-ferment and then there's the Marsan from the vines planted in 73. And then there's the Syrah from the vines planted in 71. And then I have Gamay from two other vineyards. Nice. And so, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Say that again. Sorry. Potentially mission from Lodi. Oh, fun. Yeah. So getting into the mission scene, huh? <laughs> A little taste of my homeland. Sometimes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, there's some... Oh, man. I mean, mission is having a comeback. It's amazing. We've got, it's a really cool grape. I mean... It's like, who knew that there were so many mission vineyards in California until the past two years? <laughs> like, all of a sudden, it's like, I've, you know, everybody's making a mission. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, you, are Marsan, I... I'm guessing, did you work with that in France? Yeah, absolutely. And how did they make it there? Did they put it in new oak? Um, It just depends. We didn't okay. uh, where I worked. Uh, all of our whites were in neutral oak, everything. Okay. Um, and are you, I'm guessing you're using oak as well? Yeah. I for use, some of your wines? I, I use all neutral oak at this point. So I'm just buying okay. barrels as I need them and I keep them. So you buy them used. I buy them used. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not necessarily ruling out new oak um, in the future, but right now it feels fine to not have it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's great to kind of learn. I mean, it makes sense to me to when you're, you know, especially learning a vineyard and the way that it's going to express itself, you kind of want to not, you know, put a stamp on it. Yeah, can feel some of that expression. Yeah, and until you figure out whether it needs it or not. If you're if you you're introduce yeah. a new oak barrel, it would just completely overwhelm the the blend. You know, it would be right. 
50% or 30% instead of something like 10%, which would maybe be something that I wanted a little bit more. Right, right. Until you're making a big enough quantity where like it's one barrel out of 10 or something. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. No. Yeah, the Marsan, um, it's, it's fermented and aged in neutral oak. And then it spends the second half of its life in stainless. And are you doing uh, otherwise a pretty traditional, you know, whole cluster press and settle it out and rack it off sediment for fermentation in barrel? Or do you? Um, I, I crush my Marsan a little bit just to, I don't have a crusher, but I, I foot tread it just to mimic Uh pressure and then in the press. So there's a little bit of skin contact before it goes into the press and then it's pressed and into a tank. And then I rack off the heavy, heavy solids. I take a little bit of the finer stuff and Uh goes into a barrel and then I don't do anything and it just does what it does. So it goes fully through malolactic and. Um, Last year it didn't. This year, um, we'll see. I mean, I, it doesn't always, I'm, there's no rule. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah it's because whatever I happens fine right. or filter either um it has to have a good enough ph to not go through ml to be safe in the bottle with minimal sulfur so, so it's this just, is, you know a gamble i mean not a gamble it's just dependent year to year that's my question for you so you're not filtering even if it doesn't fully go through mallow as long as your phs are good um okay what is good to feel safe that you have a partial mallow wine in bottle? Uh, well, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that. So, <laughs> I mean, if you have a very, you know, if you have high VA and a low pH, you know, that's not great for uh, a healthy wine with mallow, with malic acid still in it. So right. if you don't have, you know, if you have a pretty healthy wine with, low bacteria counts and low VAs and pretty low malics, uh, then you can feel pretty safe about, you know, doing a 50 part total sulfur ad and it staying pretty safe in bottle. Um, also, yeah, I mean, the, it's not like a black and white answer and, and of I course, think that's yeah. fairly like, it's super dependent. I mean, it's a living thing, your wine, right? If it's unfined and unfiltered. So, yeah, it. It's so there's a, some risk, probably at, at any risk, point. But yeah, um, ultimately, like, it's unstripped and it's in its purest form. You know, it's just settled and racked off the the lees and and that's that. It's wine in its purest form. Would you? Filter if you were concerned about the stability of it in bottle? Um, or would you do something else with it to avoid filtering? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like I, I And I I'm not trying to put you on the spot. This is like a dilemma I've faced is like, do I filter or do I put like 70 ppm sulfur in it? You know, and, it, and I don't know which one I feel. I would say less... if your wine is hazy... Um, and you have, if you have a hazy red wine, um, yeah, your wine is probably microbial and maybe filtering would be a better option, but you know, sometimes like those, if you send away your analysis and you have really high microbial yeast counts and you ask, you know, ETS, what do you recommend? They're going to be like, Ooh, this is not safe. Definitely filter this or, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but really it's a gamble. So it's just, it's a personal question. I mean, yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. For instance, I've had wines where I've sent away and they've said that exact same thing. Like this wine is not healthy. Like you risk a massive bloom later on. And then, right. you know, I didn't do anything to it. I bottled it unfined, unfiltered and with the same amount of sulfur that I would normally. And Three years later, the wine is just fine. Yeah. So it's all. But I imagine it could go the other way. You're, you are rolling the dice a little bit. Totally. totally. <laughs> yeah. 
right movie. i mean and, uh, yeah of course yeah and but you're comfortable with that that's what you're saying like that's the yeah, personal well, choice like yeah i'm you know i'm relying on uh you know tasting wine for the last 10 years and understanding like what i'm smelling before it goes into bottle it, are these really bad things that i really don't want or is this just you know are these microbes kind of living with each other in this wine and they're not going to reproduce into a crazy amount because I don't have any sugar left in the wine. I don't have any malic acid left in the wine. What else are they going to eat? So right. it's just, yeah, it's, it's a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, I think that it is a reality uh, that you have to pay attention and, and just like in the vineyard, you know, you're working with living things. You're working with a something with soul. You have to, improvise and really read it like you know that's why i think there is a level of expertise that comes with just like years of observation and and paying attention and doing that and i think you know you you i love that you are approaching that that way i think that's a really uh organic way to approach it pun intended whatever like the natural wine scene you know in the past it's had kind of a bad reputation of you know, being like super uh, gnarly wines, for lack of a better word, or mousy or mega VA or that kind of thing. But it really doesn't have to be that. And yeah, you know, I'm grateful for my kind of classic winemaking background to have all of the knowledge and, you know, understand the pathways of all of these microbes and the way wine works fundamentally to be able to apply that to making natural wine taste right. like that also tastes very classic you know uh, you're not going to get any bad flavors or crazy aromas or super va or a bunch of bread or anything like that it's still going to be very pure but also like you know a good representation of where it's from so let me ask you one other question one final question i'll say well okay. second to last question <laughs> um why are you buying grapes if you are putting all this energy and cost into the the vineyard that you're leasing and farming? Yeah. Um, and it's got multiple grapes growing on it, right? So you, totally, yeah. So I have five varieties. Um, you got plenty of variety going on, but you still are reaching out and purchasing other things. Yeah. Is that just a because you love Gamay or? Yes. Or, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the big, um, that's the big answer to that. Yeah. So I kind of my intention in starting a wine brand was at least at first was to have an homage to my time in, in the Northern Rhone. And uh-huh. it was a big part of my life there. You know, we we're right below Beaujolais and that's what we drank. That was the cheapest wine. And we drank a ton of it. And that's the nice. wine of Lyon, the city that we hung out the most in, me and friends and and colleagues. Um, yeah, and so there's no Gamay at our vineyard in Los Olivos. In my opinion, it's probably a little bit too hot uh, to plant any Gamay there or graft any Gamay there. Right. So, yeah, we just get to, it's fun to work with other sites too. And True, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, you... my my partner Topher. That was his first love of that was his first wine love too was Beaujolais. So it's uh, a little nice. nod to that also. As many first like it's many people's favorite wine. It's easy pleaser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, especially with the Gamay Nouveau. Is sort of that tradition of straight off the press kind of right around Thanksgiving here. I think a lot of people have been exposed to it that way, but more so lately. I mean, since the 2009 vintage, I think Beaujolais has sort of had a boom. It seems like, um, I mean, it's getting expensive now. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) Definitely is. Um, well, so how can people learn more about what you're doing about your vineyard and your winery and get some of your wine and, you know, get in touch if you want people to get in touch with you or see what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm so open. So if anyone has any questions about 
you know, farming uh, regeneratively here in Santa Barbara County or leasing a vineyard or, you know, making natural wine, just send me an email. You can find it all on my website. You can read about the vineyard a little bit more and read about the wines a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's omvivewine.com. And that's A-M-E-V-I-V-E, correct? Yes, correct. Uh, wine.com. Okay. Yeah, and, and there's um, – it, it's a – the website is always evolving as is most things in <laughs> oh, my yes. life. So, yeah, I intend to, like, start a journal, a farming journal and, um, you know. Nice. It's a a great website. I do like your website. It's clean and simple and and beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And you are very open. I mean, I have to say, having met you just briefly, I mean, more not briefly, but recently, um, you're already one of my favorite people, <laughs> both just for your openness and generosity of spirit, but also for all the values that you have that you're putting into your wine and your farming. It's really, I can't, uh, can't wait to taste what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you and taste your stuff. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to taste my stuff too. The new stuff again, you know, like I'm always excited for the new year. <laughs> I know there, there's some, you have to stay optimistic in this business, you know, right. it's like, I want to taste what it tastes like now, but I'm also impatient f- to taste what it tastes like in two years and four years. And I have, I'm the worst, I have the worst personality for being a winemaker. No <laughs> patience at all. And don't forget to save uh you can't, you can't sell all your wine. You have to save some cases to taste in those four years, you know? Oh, I, I hope I have that problem of having <laughs> to hold some back sometime soon. You <laughs> <We> will. <laughs> Alice, thank you so much. This has been wonderful, super informative, and you have such a great story. I really appreciate you talking to us about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.